Hi there, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Meryl Johnston. The Lifestyle Accountant Show exists to help today's accounting firm owners build successful firms while also living a healthy, happy life without sacrificing sleep, your weekends, or time with loved ones. Today, I'm chatting with Jason Andrew. I like to refer to Jason as the Warren Buffett of the accounting profession, but he tells me that Brett Kelly from Kelly Partners has a better claim to that title. Jason is a chartered accountant and founder of the Arbor Group, a hold co of financial services businesses ranging from accounting and tax services, funds management, and corporate advisory. His personal mission and passion is to improve the financial literacy of entrepreneurs and executives and to change the current worldview of the accounting profession. We were always in, 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 in tasks or interested in the sell, you know, but, um, start from scratch, build, and then sell. Uh, but then when we had, started to have conversations with these folks, um, particularly other accounting firms, yeah, you, you realize that the, the, the terms of the structure weren't as interesting as <laughs> I think it was. It's like, hey, cool, we're going to buy all of you. Um, and then there's going to be a three-year earnout, and you're going to be paid X and then you don't get the rest of your money until you hit these KPIs and thresholds. And so we, we thought, okay, that, that sounds cool. We might cash out, you know, maybe seven figures, but then you pay tax on the way out. You pay your home loan, and he's like, "Oh crap, we need to get another job." And because of what that entrepreneurial bug, I want to be an owner again. I can't visualize myself working at another boring accounting firm, right? I have a wide-ranging chat with Jason. We start with Jason's recommendation for graduate accountants to start at a small firm rather than a mid-tier or big four firm. What it was like starting SBO Financial and not paying himself much for the first couple of years. Hiring a CEO to run SBO Financial and what Jason's role looks like today, the structure of his holding company, the Arbor Group, and what he sees as the benefits of using a hold co-structure, incentivizing team members, and why Jason prefers bonuses to equity, why SBO Financial started a tax division, and the interesting structure they have in place with their head of tax, the pros and cons of roll-ups in the accounting industry, and why acquiring accounting firms can fail. All that and more coming right up on the Lifestyle Accountant Show. Are you worn out by the complexities of sales tax or maybe just tired of constantly picking up the pieces when software messes up? It's time to embrace a better way with Tax Valet. Tax Valet's sales tax compliance suite handles everything for you from data prep and filings to managing audits, all for one simple, easy to understand monthly fee. Tax Valet is looking to form meaningful relationships with accountants who truly care about their client's experience and want to partner for the long haul. We've been recommending our B-Ninjas clients chat to Tax Valet about their sales tax requirements for years. If you're interested, check out taxvalet.com, that's T-A-X-V-A-L-E-T.com, and check out their partner program. Remember, with Tax Valet, it's not just about making sales tax easier, it's about making your life easier. Hey, Jason, great to be chatting with you. Likewise, Meryl, always a pleasure. I actually was recording an interview earlier today and one of the questions that was framed from one of the listeners was, would you recommend to an accounting graduate that they take their first role at a big four firm, mid-tier firm or a small firm? And I'm interested in your take on that too. Yeah, it's a really great question. I started my career in a smaller firm, a small boutique firm. So I'm 
probably a lot very biased when I when I when I give you my perspective. At the same time, my wife, who's also an accountant, um, she started her career at a big four. Um, she was at WC until recently. So I guess there's there's two sides of the fence. My personal experience was um, starting at a smaller firm had was better for me. Uh, the reason why, because I, I enjoy diversity of work and I the level of exposure you get in a smaller firm and the variety of clients, even just working with smaller businesses, you get exposed to so much more. All the way from, you know, tax compliance, which is where I started, but even just within tax, you get exposed to, you know, more medium-sized businesses doing kind of $30, $40 million where they might be doing some some CGT advice, all the way to, you know, sole traders and working with partnerships or different structures. Um, and yeah, so my first job, I was working with ASS listed companies doing like ESOP valuations and things, which was very uncommon for a small boutique firm. We're lucky to have a great partner. But on the other hand, my wife, who's a PwC, for most of her career, she was quite siloed into technical tax and mm-hmm. she loves it. So she really enjoys technical tax. But when it came down to, um, you know, just general accounting or whatever, that was probably not a, she had, didn't have a great deal of exposure in that area and had to learn it quickly. So um, yeah, I think, I think it really depends what you want. Yeah, that, that was a similar answer that the, the other lady had. So I started at a mid-tier. So I worked at BDO, but I turned down an offer at Big Four because I knew I always wanted to run my own business and I thought I'd get more exposure to diverse businesses if I went a little bit smaller. Whereas some of my friends, I was in audit. So some of my friends in audit, they were working on one finance business or bank for two or three months at a time. And so I was interested in a bit more exposure. I think you were pretty lucky, it sounds like, with the small firm you were at too, if you were working on things for ASX-listed companies and that kind of diverse, interesting work. So I think that might be a bit dependent on the firm as well. 100%. I think it all comes back to the partner you work for as well. Um, in the smaller mm-hmm. firms, this is typically a flatter structure. There's less kind of layers of, you know, from trainee, I was a trainee accountant all the way to, you know, there's middle management, whatever. In the big four firms, there's, you know, there's tenured employees that have been there for decades sometimes in the smaller firms you'll find that um, it's a flatter structure and you get more exposure working directly with the partner and I was really lucky the partner I worked for who's still a mentor to this day he was ex-EY um, and so he, he brought a lot of his clients from from big four firms into a small firm ex- environment which which is how I got that exposure um, so I think it's if you're looking for that experience you really want to find the firm but also look for the partner and make sure that they've they've mm-hmm. had they've kind of at least done Bigger, bigger into town work if that's what you're interested in. And so what did the journey look like from working at that firm to where you are today? Where you've got SBO Financial, but I believe that's only one business under the Arbor Group. Yeah, so we set up... So I was yeah, most of my career, I was in, in a mid-tier accounting firm. So we, we were WHK Hallworth or Crow Hallworth, which, uh, which is now Findex. We, every, when I joined there, um, we seemed to change name every year because we seemed to merge or get acquired by a group. But essentially, WHK Hallworth was an AXS-listed roll-up of accounting firms. And that happened. I, I, I kind of joined that business as they were, as they were buying and merging firms together. Um, so I was in Brisbane. Um, I was it was in the business services team, and then moved into corporate finance. Uh, and basically, it was a, it was a listed company. Uh, stock price wasn't performing well. Um, I think what we learned from that experience had direct exposure to seeing how incentives may <laughs> change or behaviors might change as soon as you get bought out uh, from from a bigger play. You cash out, and all these accounting firm partners who once had equity in their own shop, um, you know, had cash 
and maybe some stock also rolled into the bigger company, but the share price was not, not performing so well. So a lot of them just disregarded the, the, their equity that they had in the listed company. Uh, but you could just see there, just motivation kind of just fell off a cliff to an extent. They're like, ah, oh, they're fat and happy. You know, mortgage paid off. Kids are in private school. Got got some money in investments now. I can just kind of take the take the pedal, uh, take my foot off the pedal for a bit. And uh, yeah, so I wasn't. And, and then at the same time, because the share price is falling, um, the, the company was actually taken private by a financial planning group called Findex. And so that was taken private. And I was in the corporate advisory team at, at that stage. And it was clear that the corporate advisory team, the audit, and even specialist tax, they weren't core to Findex's strategy. Their strategy was more around financial planning and, and business services to, to really building that recurring revenue and the fee base and servicing high net, high net wealth people and upselling accounting clients as financial planners. Where if you're in corporate advisory and audit and taxes, there's not really that. You're dealing with like corporate businesses. And so it didn't really fit this strategy for them. Um, and so it was clear that there wasn't going to be a huge future in, in that division I was in. It, they're still around now, like those divisions, but they're not as big as I thought, I, I thought that would be. Um, so I left. And so I had a decision. A lot of my bosses quit and they went to another firm. And so I had a decision do I join them and you know, continue my career in, in this space? Or do I pursue SBO or Smart Books Online, which was the time, which was a, a, a side hustle at the time. So my business partner and I, Rowan, set that company up probably 12 months before I had to make that decision and just kind of get the, the bones of it together, which was essentially a bookkeeping business. And um, yeah, so we decided to jump straight in and, and make, that, make that a full-time gig. And then what was that like? Did you have any business experience? What, what, what was it like when you went from side hustle to all in, quit the job and going in head first? I, I do remember the feeling walking out of the corporate building of carrying my box of stuff, you know, leaving the office. I thought, oh, this is such a new adventure. I was really excited. Um, but the, the, you know, the following Monday when you <laughs> start work, you're like, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. So um, I guess you know how to do the technical work. We read bookkeeping because our bookkeeping you know, should be fairly straightforward given that, you know, no debits and credits. But I was actually wrong about that. I didn't even know how to use zero. So I had to learn how to do bookkeeping <laughs> and uh you know and uh, i'm a quite big picture thinker so having to like get really granular in the details was was a challenge for me at the beginning but um yeah suddenly switching from an employee to to an owner mentality was was a big learning curve you know hit the hidden the pavement every day trying to um meet clients meet, meet people to refer us clients um the first two or three years was a was a grind i didn't pay myself for close to two years um because we just decided to invest everything back into hiring and then trying to remove ourselves from the operations, which uh, was very difficult and uh, a period of my life which was very challenging and sucked a lot. <laughs> I, I can relate to a lot of that. So I started a bookkeeping business and didn't know how to do bookkeeping as well. <laughs> I yeah, came for yeah. audit. So same thing, I understood the mechanics of how the numbers work together and what you need to change to get to the end result that I had to learn zero and learn all about bookkeeping and thought, oh, this is pretty a repeatable process, but there, there's a, more to it than that. And same thing, the early couple of years, not getting paid much, working long hours, grinding away, thinking, is this worth it? Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, 100%. So how did you afford not to pay yourself? Were you living off savings or what was your situation back then? Yeah, that was exactly right. So I was, we had a, I had a mortgage, was it like I uh, had, had a mortgage for my house, but I had about 25K of savings set aside um, for, I, I, just, I just like to keep cash money in, in my bank account just for rainy days. I guess that was that was my savings at the, at the time. 
Um, so I had to basically carefully manage. And, and I'm not, I wasn't married at that stage. I didn't have any children. Um, my fiance and I lived in a house. Um, so I basically had to do really strict personal budgeting and, and realized that I had 18 months, about, you know, it was about 19 months of runway to not pay myself and just live off the savings um, to, 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 to get the thing running and <laughs> hopefully just starting to draw something. And even then, after that 18 month period, um, I think the wage that we drew was like, might be like two or three grand a month. It wasn't even a lot, but it covered the run. I covered my run, my burn rate. Sorry, we weren't making money, we weren't saving money, but we were just living essentially. Um, yeah. yeah, and I was the lowest paid employee for for a long time. Like we hired an operations manager who is now our CEO, Vanessa, and she was our most expensive hire. And when you're when you're paying people more than you're getting paid, it's like ah. It's it's pretty yeah you you bite your tongue like oh this is this is what I'm signing up for and and it's worked out well for us now but at the time it, it was quite difficult. <laughs> I can relate to that too. <laughs> Clicking on the fortnightly payroll and oh yeah, lot quite a few people <laughs> getting more than I am. Yeah, exactly. Let's go through the transition. I know we're skipping a few years here, but I know that Vanessa went on to become your CEO and you and Rowan gradually stepped out of the day today. How long did it take from oh, to, to get to that point? Um, I'd say we're still transitioning to, to an extent. Um, it's never when you're kind of handing over the reins to, to people in your business as, as you would, you know, you've done the same thing. It's you're never fully out. It's not as if like one day you actually wake up like, cool, I have no duties today and everything is perfectly handed over. It, it is a transition. And, um, you know, we, we are still, I'm probably, I'm not in your operations, but I still have client relationships and I'm still sitting in on, on meetings and things like that. Uh, for two reasons, someone I, I, I enjoy it. I still have um, a lot of clients we work with are, you know, peers of mine and I'm just genuinely personally interested in their growth and how they're going. I mean, the second part of that is we are still form a, a little bit of a training slash coaching um, hat that I, that I wear within the business. And again, that's, um, you know, hopefully that's uh, transitory that we'll, we'll, I think we've just hired a few couple of people who help to add more senior experience to the team from that perspective. But um, yeah, it's, it's a transition, but I would say in the last probably two years, we've, we've put a plan in place and it was actually one of our strategic goals for FY20 Two was to remove myself from, from the, as a key person in the business, which um, which we achieved. So when you when Vanessa was announced into that role, and I imagine there was a bit of a transition, what was the biggest weight off your shoulders having someone else in that position? Um, I think it's I wouldn't this is uh, yeah good question. I think the weight is not necessarily about tasks. It was like hey, cool, I have to have to think about this task game or like Vanessa was already taking doing a lot of the heavy lifting operationally anyway because that was by position description that was her role um i think it was just knowing that we had someone else to lean on like it's like cool there's another management management executive person in in the in the in the tent per se who you know takes ownership or kind of you know own you know make, make things run if i don't it's not going to be dependent on me to, to get things moving there's, there's someone there and um and if something goes wrong like there's someone there to handle it there's some there's a firefighter sort of having to fall on my plate and of course there are I've had been moments where you know there are fires which you get escalated um or just workshop or need to brainstorm a second opinion and that's where they're we're there to support but our view is that we're trying to and have to an extent but trying to position ourselves more as advisors or similar to like what a board would do to would be to a ceo that's kind of how we uh, are trying to see our relationship in the business This podcast is brought to you by Electrify. 
Are you an accountant grappling with the complexities of crypto? Are your business savvy crypto clients hard to keep up with? Do you find the intricacies of blockchain technology overwhelming? Don't worry, Electrify is here to help. With their roots in Bitcoin accounting since 2014, they specialize in crafting strategies for SME accountants that not only attract the right clients, but also turn them into profitable partnerships. They'll help you to update your service models and pricing and provide you with relevant training, tooling, and workflows. Work with the team at Electrify to build the foundation to confidently support your clients' crypto transactions and businesses. Check out electrify.finance to find out more. That's E-L-E-C-T-R-A-F-I dot finance. I remember when I was going through my transition, so it was December 2021 for me that I stepped out as CEO and by title, I was an advisor, but it definitely took longer than that to make that transition. And a mentor of mine was talking about his transition, a much bigger business than Bean Ninjas, but he said that the last 5%, for him to get out of the last 5% of his business, it took three very expensive people to do that, the final bit of not tasks, but the weight of responsibility for some of those things. And so for me, I still have some, if something goes wrong, that's still me on the hook as, as one of the major shareholders of the business that I, I care. And I'm going to step back in if, if something happens or if something goes wrong. And I still look at cash flow weekly and still click off on uh, payables once a fortnight. You know, there's a few things that I still care about, even though it's not exactly in my position description anymore. And I don't know whether that's something I need to let go of. But at the moment, I I haven't. Yeah, gotcha. Well, okay, I'm curious. What was that last five percent um, that your mentor mentioned? He didn't go into exactly what it was. I think some of it was finance related. Yeah. Uh, some of it was risk related, risk management. So I, he yeah. didn't exactly explain that. But but when he was talking about well, what my role might be, maybe being just isn't big enough for me to give up. You know, the, the final couple of percent. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I think that there is still a role. I mean, you, you know, your majority shareholder and and I guess founder, I guess similar position to us. There is still an element of um, control that you'd still like, or even oversight. And we have monthly board meetings where we get updates on how things are going. And again, I'm I'm still we're still small enough where I kind of check in with the team every now and again, like randomly just to see how things are going with them. But so I, I feel like I, there's a bit of a, a pulse check that happens regularly. But um, yeah, there are certain things <laughs> that you just can't help yourself. Like oh, I'm in my zero file every other day, like just looking at the numbers. You know? oh, yes, I still keep an eye on the bank balance too. Right? Yeah. Regularly, <laughs> regularly take <laughs> exactly. a look. <laughs> exactly right. And I think that, that will be the case for everything I do. Like even the businesses that we, we invest in or buy, I'm, I'm, I'm always looking at out of, out of the outside the monthly report reports. So I can't just, yeah, I'm curious. I'm just kind of myself, you know, I'm an accountant. What can I say? <laughs> So what does your role look like now? Where do you spend most of your time? Uh, at the moment, right now, um, I'd say that if you look at, you know, percentages of the week, um, it's not as it's not structured as I'd like it to be, uh, which is something I'm working on. I'm, I find myself, I'm not really a, a well-structured person. It, um, I'm kind of a little bit over the shot. Um, but at the moment, right now, um, I'm working on a strategy, um, on, on accounting partnerships, which we can maybe talk about later. Um, work on content creation, so um, doing a lot of writing. Uh, a few, uh, we started a podcast recently, so we're also building that up. So I'd say probably a third of my time is content creation. A third is kind of strategy, kind of management of, of businesses and things. And a third is probably 
Um, yeah, just kind of checking in with people, like BD, relationships, just seeing what's out there, meeting people, getting new ideas and just chatting to people. And that, that, I guess that forms a broad business development bucket and that business development bucket could relate to prospective clients for SBO. It could be potential, um, you know, someone doing interesting things in, in investing or acquisitions or, you know, maybe the family office. That could be something to do with that. Um, or it could be just something completely random like um, me talking to a business broker about car washes or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think you've shared your group structure. I've seen it somewhere. Maybe it was on LinkedIn and you had the Arbor group and then you had multiple other parts. There was a media. Um, maybe you could just describe that briefly just so the listeners can have a bit of an overview for those that aren't. They probably are mostly familiar with you, but it uh, might be helpful. Yeah, so we started, I mean, originally it was just SBO Financial or SBO was our uh, bookkeeping company. Um, and, and then after probably, like we, we had, we were doing discussions with a, a bunch of people ranging from big four accounting firms to some private investors to say, hey, um, love what you guys are building, would love to um, invest or maybe buy a chunk of your company. And like, oh, interesting, because when we started the company, we always had this naive view that, hey, we could, we could scale it to X amount of revenue in five years and then sell it like a private equity firm. Because my background was corporate advisory, right? So we, we did this, you know, the, the roll-up playbook or the growth playbook and then selling it was a very sexy thing to do. And we thought, oh, this would be a fun thing to do with bookkeeping. Realized that it's very hard to grow a services business um, organically to, to, from zero to $10 million in a short amount of time. So we didn't <laughs> no one, no one close to that. But um, yeah, so we were always in, in Enticed or interested in the sell, you know, bought, um, start from scratch, build, and then sell. Uh, but then when we had, started to have conversations with these folks, um, particularly other accounting firms, yeah, you, you realize that the, the, the terms of the structure weren't as interesting as <laughs> I think it was. It's like, hey, cool, we're going to buy all of you. Um, and then there's going to be a three year earnout and you're going to be paid X. And then you don't get the rest of your money until you hit these KPIs and thresholds. And so we, we thought, okay, that, that sounds cool. We might cash out, you know, maybe seven figures, but then you pay tax on the way out, you pay out your home loan, and then he's like, oh crap, we need to get another job. And because of what that entrepreneurial bug, I want to be an owner again, I can't visualize myself working at another boring accounting firm, right? Which is the reason, one of the reasons why we got out to starting our own business is like, I just looked up the career path. I'm like, I just can't, I can't envision myself working with these partners in, in these firms. So, so boring, stale, very short-term thinking, all, all that sort of stuff. Probably very similar reasons um, to, to your journey, Meryl. Um, but it just, just was interesting. So we pictured, well, if we did sell the business, <clears throat> we did sell the business to these folks, we kind of like end back, you, you end up like, yeah, you have some money, but you end up right at the beginning again, where you're just working for at a big stale company, which you don't necessarily align your values with. So it's like, okay, well then, if that was an option, we thought, well, why don't we just never sell, why don't we just hold the business? And so we, that kind of trends, it shifted our thinking into a buy and hold strategy where we should just hold great businesses, which is a very Warren Buffett um, kind of mentality. So, so with that bigger picture in mind, we thought, okay, well, let's, let's restructure our business. So we inserted the holding company, which is called Arbor Group Holdings. And that essentially is owned by my business partner and I. And underneath Arbor Group Holdings is a, is a group of different companies, which, which um, are different businesses in currently financial services, accounting, tax, um, we have a VC, private equity and private equity business and a few others. But basically the idea is that we would invest or, or buy great businesses and ideally just hold them forever. Um, so that's, that's the broader vision for the, the group. And just a quick question around 
equity and incentivizing team members because you've talked about buy and hold and you and Rowan are the owners of the overall group and then there's multiple different businesses um, involved. How do you think about, well, I imagine that a lot of accountants think that they're working their way up in a partnership model. Eventually, they might become a partner and then own part of that business. So how do you think about that and who, how do you structure things at, at SBO? Yeah, it's a great question. SBO specifically, um, we don't have an equity component for staff. The reason why is, so we, we consider doing an employee share scheme or an ESOP for, for our team in, in SBO, which we, we want to do. The issue with that is that I'll never be liquid. <laughs> so if we have no intention, intention to sell the business or sell the shares in this instance or raise capital or do an IPO or whatever, Really, you know, you're just giving people a piece of paper saying that, hey, you own 1% of SBO Financial, your job. And I don't think people would put as much weight on that, much value on that piece of paper than, than we would as shareholders, right? Because we know how much we think they're worth because we've given it to them, but they may not have the same incentive or weight of the incentive. So rather than doing an equity uh, option we do, we have uh, an employee pool. Uh, uh, sorry, a um, profit share pool where every year we allocate ten percent of our profit to to a pool, and then we pay that out um, to to all the staff. So everyone's included in that, with the exception of our CEO. So Vanessa's on a separate KPI structure where um, yeah, she she's she's got uh, different metrics to achieve, but then gets a a bonus basically at the end of the year. So it's very much, both of them are STIs. We haven't yet figured out an LTI, a long-term incentive structure for SBO, something we're still figuring out, um, but we find that people are pretty happy with cash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so next up, I suppose we could take the conversation a couple of ways. So one, I'm definitely interested in what you've been learning about with the roll-up strategy and you've talked that talked about that you've got some interest there and I know you also started a tax I don't know if it's a division entity however you describe it under yeah. the SBO financial umbrella and I don't know if that was a separate transaction or that kind of fits in with this roll-up strategy so maybe do you want to pick one of those and and then we can follow up with the other yeah, so one, one kind of leads into the other. So the tax, so for context for who for folks listening who don't know who like our background, we're an accounting firm, but actually until 12 months ago, we didn't actually offer any tax services, or any compliance mm -hmm. services. Like we did BAS and IAS and stuff like that, but we didn't actually do any income tax returns or advice around structuring, things like that. And we, we grew the business organically to, you know, multiple seven figures of turnover, not doing tax compliance, right? Which I think is in hindsight, not, not a bad trajectory, but... We thought, well, most firms are the opposite. Most accounting firms have all of their bread and butter in tax compliance, and we had none. Um, so we thought, and, and we're getting constant feedback from our clients that, hey, can you just do my tax? Because we would rather use my tax agent. Can we just put it under the one roof? Um, additionally, we would actually lose potential engagements because prospective clients who wanted the, the sexy stuff in SBO Financial also wanted us to do their tax compliance, and we just couldn't offer it. And so we we're actually losing work because of that. Which really sucks. Um, so, and even they they knew that we we're the better fit. They're like, listen, I, we are, yeah, we want this stuff, but we just want everything done under one roof because it saves money long term and, and whatever. So we're like, okay, there's a strategic reason to do this, even though that we we were, we previously marketed ourselves as kind of accountants that don't do tax. That that yeah. kind of worked for a bit because like, oh, so raises a question: if you don't do tax and you're an accountant, what do you actually do? And then you talk 
opportunity to talk about all the other stuff. But um, yeah, so we set up a, a tax practice. That's a, that's a subsidiary of SBO Financial. So it's a subsidiary of this SBO Financial wholly owns that company. And we, we have a partnership arrangement with um, our head of tax, Andrew, who, who's a weapon based in Sydney. Um, yeah, so we've been working together for 18 months now and, and it's doing really well. Like there's, there's teething issues with every new service um, and every mm-hmm. new kind of stakeholder that you bring into the business. But um, so far, I think we're, we're pretty happy with, with the, the results. This podcast is brought to you by TeamUp, helping you to recruit top Filipino accountants without the ongoing monthly fees. They can source accountants with experience working at US or Australian firms who are familiar with tools like Xero, QBO, and Dext. They can also recruit specialist roles like bookkeeping team leaders who have leadership experience and Australian tax specialists. I recently came on board as an investor and advisor to TeamUp, and I love their ethical approach to the offshoring industry, where they look after both the accounting firm and the Filipino accountants. Make sure to check out the TeamUp newsletter for more content on building top-tier accounting teams in the Philippines. That's at hireteamup.com, H-I-R-E-T-E-A-M-U-P.com. I might just ask one follow-up question there. When you say a partnership arrangement with Andrew, so does he have some decision-making power? Does he Is he the operator of that business? Is he? I don't know how much he can share. Does he feel like he's an owner? How did you kind of structure things with him? Yeah, so it's a partnership arrangement where we, we still own all the equity in that in that company. It's a, Financially, it's a revenue share arrangement. So um, 50-50 goes to each partner. We're there to bring in, obviously, bring in clients from SBO's perspective or existing clients moving to, looking to upsell, but also new clients who, who just want tax services through through SBO on the brand. Um, and Andrew is the technician um, and kind of the face of the, the tax side and also has his own staff that, that he pays out of his P&L. Um, and then we just have our company share basically arrangement through that. Um, and yeah, we also then lean into our kind of infrastructure and our systems that we've built over kind of seven to eight years, which is um, what this is really fantastic at. Um, so leveraging yeah. that that efficiency and process and scalability model um, overlaid with the technician, the, the, the technical know-how and expertise that Andrew brings. Yeah, I think that's a nice way of structuring it. I've spent a bit of time thinking about revenue share deals uh, compared to other ways of structuring deals. And I think one of the advantages is that then you don't have to have conversations or, or be discussing the expense side of things. That that's, if he wants to hire someone, somebody or he wants to use different software, then you don't have to be involved in all of that conversation because it's just based on a top line revenue number that's pretty easy to calculate and doesn't require a whole lot of negotiation. I suppose the pros and cons of every way to, to structure deals, but that was one of the things I'd thought about with doing a revenue share deal. Yeah, I just find it's really easy. It's a very simple 50-50. It just makes sense. It's easy to implement and yeah, it takes a lot of the negotiating out of the, the OPEX line item or the yes. cold line item. So it's like, oh, the revenue is this, the fee is this, half is yours, half is mine, move yeah. on kind of thing. It works quite well. Yeah. So how does that play into the the roll-up strategy that, that you're talking about? And where are you at with that? What's your thinking there? Yeah, so we're not... Um, I don't, roll-up is probably not the right 
term. Um, so a roll-up, so that there's probably like a partner strategy is probably the, the better term to describe what we're exploring. But I might, I might take a step back and explain the difference yeah. between the two. So there's kind of, when people talk about buying businesses or, you know, actually yeah, buying businesses, there's kind of different strategies within that overall strategy of buying a business, right? Um, so a roll-up is a term used by a lot of people when they use to describe buying many of the same type of business. So for an example, an accounting firm roll-up is that I would go and buy a lot of accounting firms. Um, and you'll commonly see this. That I wouldn't say there are two... WHK Horworth was an accounting firm roll-up. Like that's the, the place that, I, that I, I used to work at where they were literally buying small and medium size accounting firms, rebadging them, like we would re, rename them to... WHK Horth at that stage, we would you know, change our letterheads, tell the clients, hey, we've, we've been bought by WHK Horth, do all that sort of stuff. And the idea behind that is, you know, let's just say there's 50 accounting firms that they bought. All of those 50 accounting firms have their own people and culture or HR person. They all have their own finance team. They have their marketing and sales team. Um, they have lots of duplicate costs, right? Even though some of them have duplicate leases, right? So if you're buying two, two firms in the same street in Brisbane, well, like, Makes sense just to have one office instead of having two. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind a roll-up is that rather than all these mini businesses kind of duplicating all their fixed expenses or their kind of non-revenue generating costs, the idea is that you centralize all those costs into a, a corporate model where you centralize all the costs and rather than having duplicate costs, you'll just have one cost shared amongst all of them, right? So you have like a shared office, a shared, a shared services division. And that works in theory uh, because you know you've got a HR team servicing 50 accounting firms rather than, you know, a HR team for each 50 HR firm uh, people, you have one or maybe a handful for 50. So there's, in theory, synergies with that model. Um, the downside to that model is that things, uh, more centralization you have, typically the less um, incentive alignment you have, typically at the portfolio company level, the portfolio being the accounting firms. Like the partners don't have, they have less agency because a lot of decisions have to be run by head office. And I think that matters a lot when you're dealing with uh, services businesses, particularly where you've got key people running the business, right? And so you still want that autonomy and, and, and pure incentive alignment. And back on back when the, the thing of incentives is that, you know, once, once these partners who are experienced firsthand, once they've cashed out, like, there's no real incentive for them to drive performance in their business. They've kind of made their money and they're happy just to coast. Where mm -hmm. if I was a shareholder of the roll up corporate. I want, you know, I want to maximize my return as a shareholder, right? So I want to see growth. I want to see higher profits. I want to see all this, this kind of operational leverage, but you may not get that from the people doing the actual work, right? Because there's no incentive for them to do it. So there, there are pros and cons of the, of the roll up model. Typically roll up models, you see it come like another, a great example in Australia of a services business roll up is Green Cross Vets. So Glenn Richards um, is, a, is, a technical, is a vet by trade and he rolled up Vet, vet clinics across Australia and corporatized that. Listed it on the ASX. That's been taken private again by private equity. But anyway, um, so that's an example of like a, a roll-up um, versus what we're exploring. So we, yeah, to, I'll say it now. We are exploring a, 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 a partnership model. Um, one that is, seems to be fairly successful in the Australian market. Um, so Kelly and Partners is a ASX listed uh, kind of aggregator of accounting firms and you know, the model is that rather than buying 100% of the accounting firm, you would buy a chunk of their firm, um, usually 50% or yeah, or maybe more than that, 50 or 60%. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to retain 
a bunch of it. So the, the key people within the business, within the firm, retain a bunch of the equity. So that, um, so you, and then the Kelly part as well is that you would then, yes, we'll centralize the, the overhead costs. We rebrand the firm, which I don't necessarily agree with, but that's what they decide to do. Um, and so you get the, the, the upside of all the centralized head office costs. Mm-hmm. Um, but you still have skin in the game for the partners who are actually doing yeah. the work, right? So it's, it's kind of a aligned incentive. Um, and so, yeah, I think that model seems to be working. I mean, uh, their the share price has done okay. I think the, the, the business, the financials look, look pretty good as well. Um, so we're exploring a strategy in, in a similar structure. We're going to wrap up this episode here, but watch out for next week's episode where I continue the conversation with Jason. And in that episode, we'll be talking about acquisition opportunities in the accounting space. What a great conversation with Jason today. It it was interesting hearing the similarities and differences between uh, Jason and and me and how we replaced ourselves as CEO. And the benefit was not so much handing over responsibility for tasks as in both of our cases, that was already mostly handed over, but sharing the weight of responsibility and um, passing over some of that that headspace to someone else in the business, because that weight of responsibility can take up space in your head, even if you don't have a big task list to tick off. A few of Jason's other comments that stood out to me were his take on roll-ups within the accounting industry and his firsthand experience being at Findex and seeing the motivation levels of partners drop once they got their big payout. It was also interesting that he didn't pay himself for the first two years at SBO Financial so that he could focus on building a team and scaling the business. That sounds like a painful path, but it also helped him to scale quickly and eventually replace himself as CEO. The way that he structured the tax part or the tax division or tax business unit at SBO Financial as a revenue share, uh, I thought that was interesting hearing his perspective on that too. So watch out for next week's episode with Jason and he'll be diving into accounting firm acquisitions, including the financing options available. If you're wanting to do an acquisition, he'll share the way he's planning to structure their deals at Arbor Group and whether it's better to grow your firm via acquisitions or through sales and marketing. 